The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Welcome, Father. Well, thank you, Tom. Good to see you. You too. Tonight we will continue our discussion of viewer topics, and our first question, Father, comes from a rather lengthy email that we received from one of our viewers, um, but for the sake of brevity, I'll attempt to, to sum it up here. So this particular viewer expresses a great love for our Lord and for Holy Mother Church. However, he does not currently attend any masses nor receive any sacraments of any form right now, um, but instead chooses to practice what he terms stay-at-home Catholicism. And the reason for this is his great disdain expressed for the changes of the Second Vatican Council, keep him away from the Novus Order Church, but at the same time, uh, the, the qualms of his conscience keep him from attending traditional masses and receiving traditional sacraments due to the lack of jurisdiction granted to traditional priests and traditional societies. So how would you, how would you answer that question, Father? Well, he's concerned about jurisdiction. Uh, that is uh, the authorization from the authorities in the church to practice the faith, basically. Priests to administer the sacraments and, and having the, the sacraments faith uh, accessible to the Catholic people. Uh, I would well, there are a number of things that, that should be said about this, obviously, but one would have to give a lot of background with regard to uh, having faculties, you know, and then the whole nature of jurisdiction within the church. Um, uh, I would say this gentleman may be well motivated, but he's mistaken. If he thinks that uh, the lack of um, jurisdiction granted by the enemies of the church, the modernists, sounds like he understands what that means, right? The modernists have taken control, have uh, wormed their way into positions of power within the church and uh, within the church hierarchy and are using uh, or try attempting to use the power, or at least the pretense of that power, to shut down the church and to deny the sacraments to the people. I'd say he's actually allowing them to be successful with him. They have accomplished exactly what they wanted with him. And uh, to get people to come to their Novus Ordo religion and to receive the Novus Ordo sacraments and, within, and the Novus Ordo mass attendance and so on, uh, that's fine and good, but the real objective is to get the Catholic people to abandon the Mass and the sacrament, the true Mass and the true sacraments. And he is uh, allowing them to be successful in his life. Um, the, the power that the Church has it received from our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And uh, this means that the power that the Church has uh, resembles the power of Christ. It comes from Christ. Christ actually invested his own powers in the church. Our Lord is the priest and, and the king. He is the prophet, in, in a sense, um, uh, in this sense. 
that the the priest who is the high priest uh, he is the one who is himself the priest as God and man and mediator between God and man and uh, he allows mortal men who are priests to share in that priesthood uh, by through the power of the Holy Sacrament of ordination he himself our Lord gave these priestly powers to his apostles at the Last Supper Notably, okay, and um, so um, they share in the priesthood, um, in only insofar as Christ Himself has shared these powers with them. Um, the, the power of our Lord to be the prophet, in other words, He speaks for God, okay, in the world, as God and man, He uh, He truly speaks for God. And uh, that is what the prophet does, okay? And all, all those who have the character of prophets and giving prophecies have that power from him. He, he shares it with them. Um, they receive it from him. The same with the power of the king. I mean, he has the power of jurisdiction uh, to make laws. Uh, our Lord was referred to uh, very often as the lawgiver, okay? Those who recognized him as one greater than Moses, as one giving the new law, okay? And so um, all power of government comes from our Lord, as St. Paul says, right? Now these, these powers generally are uh, considered by the Church uh, to be divided between the power of holy orders, that is the power of um, justifying and sanctifying souls, through the Mass and the sacraments, blessings and so on. And then on the other hand, you have what they call the power of jurisdiction. And the powers of jurisdiction actually include the power of magisterium, that is the teaching authority as the prophet, and the governing authority as the king, okay, the kingly powers of Christ. So when you're talking about jurisdiction, you're talking about well, in the mind of the church, you're talking about the teaching authority of the church and you're talking about the governing authority of the church. Generally, those two are considered under the title of jurisdiction. Okay, Speaking the things that are binding to the souls and faith and morals. So, so, But notice that when our Lord gave the powers of jurisdiction, the powers of... Um, of teaching and and governing. Our Lord uh, gave the powers of justification and sanctification of the soul, the power of holy orders, so that those powers are not entirely subject to the power of jurisdiction. For example, I mean, the church herself has recognized this from the very beginning, that when a man is ordained a priest, he is personally ordained a priest. And there are certain powers that he has as a priest that cannot be taken from him under any circumstances. Um, he can offer a valid Mass, even if he becomes the worst sinner in the world, even if he's excommunicated for the worst possible crimes, not only against the moral law, but against the faith. Okay? He can still validly offer Mass. Uh, no power of jurisdiction has the power to take that power from him. Because he has the character of the priesthood. Now, even then, what the, the power of jurisdiction may say, 
those who have the power of jurisdiction of the church might say to him, you do not have the authority to hear confessions and to grant absolution to anybody, okay? You're excommunicated, or even if you're not excommunicated, we withhold that. You don't have the power anywhere on earth granted to you by anyone who has jurisdiction, any local ordinary or any uh, clerical exempt religious order superior. You don't have any authority to hear your confessions and to, admit, to give absolution. But even then, the church has said there are circumstances under which he can. He hasn't lost the power to forgive. Um, uh, ordinarily, one would need faculties from the local, the ordinary of a diocese to hear a confession for someone who belongs to the diocese and to give absolution to someone who belongs to the diocese. Um, but there are circumstances in which the church law herself says the church supplies the jurisdiction. And that is a principle that is as old as the church itself, basically, and which is universally recognized by the church throughout all of the ages. Ecclesia supplet. That can be stretched, but yeah, I mean, any law can be stretched and any law can be uh, basically uh, abused, right? But the fact is that uh, the church recognizes there is such a principle. The church supplies the jurisdiction actually over and above, over the heads of all of the individuals involved. Um, over the heads of, of the, the, the bishops and the cardinals and even the popes. The church supplies jurisdictions under certain circumstances. And why? Well, because the supreme law of the church, as the code of the church's canon law says itself, the supreme law of the church, the highest law, the law from which all other laws of the church derive, is the salvation of souls. That's why Christ created the church in the first place, right? It's of her purpose to justify and sanctify souls. That's what the power of holy orders is all about, okay? So, this great power, uh, which involves the, uh, the sanctification of the soul, the justification of the soul from sin, the sanctification of soul by grace, even the power to command the uh, transubstantiation of the bread and wine in Mass, okay? This is the power which actually accomplishes the purpose for which Christ came and for which he gave his life on the cross, and for which he established his church. Okay, um, That does not depend absolutely on what is happening with those who hold the jurisdiction of the church. Okay, So popes have come and gone, cardinals have come and gone, bishops have come and gone, Okay, but the, uh, the power of the exercise of justifying the soul and sanctifying the soul is subject, yes, to jurisdiction. That's true. But Christ so gave that power of holy orders so that it is not absolutely subject to that power. It can still function in the church even if you have bad bishops, even if you had bad cardinals, and even if they're electing bad popes, or even false popes. That power of jurisdiction continues. I should say that power of holy orders continues through. <clears throat> uh, when popes die, <coughs> there is an interregnum. Okay, it can last days, it can last weeks, months, even years. Okay, the sanctifying power of the church continues all during that time. It doesn't grind to a halt. Okay, and uh, even if all of the uh, 
those who hold jurisdiction in the church were to be imprisoned and held incommunicado. They couldn't communicate with the church members. Even in times of terrible crisis, the sanctifying power of the church continues through her priesthood. Even if the voice of the jurisdiction of the church has been silenced by oppression, by persecution, even internal persecution through the modernists having invaded, the sanctifying power remains. That's what they were targeting. That's what they were trying to destroy. That's why they wanted to get into the positions of power in the teaching authority, magisterium, and the governing authority, right, the, the royal authority of the kingship, as it were, because they want to shut down the power of justification and the power of sanctification of souls. Because ultimately this is something satanic and he wants souls to go to hell. Right. Okay, that's the whole point. This gentleman and others like him need to remember that. Uh, the, the conclusion of all this is that even if the modernists were to completely seize all of the powers, uh, seize all of the positions in the church, which God would not allow them to do, completely take over all that, right? And were to absolutely say, no more sacraments, no more mass, finito, it's over, right? Which would be basically decreeing uh, that the death of the church, right? Putting Christ back in the tomb again and sealing it up again, right? Even if they were trying, going to try to do that, they can't. They don't have the power to do that because this, the power of the priesthood must continue in the church and must be continued to be active. It cannot be stopped. Right. Uh, so, <clears throat> fundamental bottom line point is that if you look back in history, we're going to call ourselves Catholic. We have to be traditional. You can't be Catholic if you're not traditional, okay? Because Catholics look at tradition on the level with sacred scripture itself, okay, as part of divine revelation, right? So you have uh, the traditional practice of the church, and if you look back, you find the traditional practice of the church is the justifying and the sanctifying power of the clergy continue. And if you know, if you look into the law of the church, you see the principle, I mentioned Canada 209, uh, with uh, positive doubt and so on and so forth. The church does grant the jurisdiction for the sake of the souls of the faithful to be, be absolved, to receive, to attend Mass, to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, and, and all the rest. You know, If you have a, a modernist power that, that, that worms its way into control and then says, I'm giving you a new liturgy, which is not the Catholic Mass, and I'm commanding you all to go to my new liturgy and forbidding you all to go to the traditional Mass, because I will not give recognition to that traditional Mass, which I'm trying to obliterate, right? The Catholic faithful know this cannot be. This cannot be the will of Christ. It cannot be done by the command of Christ. Right. And so I will not uh, disobey Christ by obeying such a command, because that's what it would be. It would be disobedience to Christ, in order to be uh, obedient to the Antichrist and Antichrist. I would say this gentleman should find a true traditional priest and resume practicing his faith again. Because if he's not attending Mass and the sacraments, he's not practicing his faith. Exactly. And Father, this seems like a rather common argument used against traditionalist <clears throat> Catholics that 
certain individuals will say, how can traditionalist Catholics go and, and do everything they're doing, offering masses and administering the sacraments and all of this, when the entire Vatican, every, everyone in Rome is against them, is opposing them? How can, how can the, the small group of traditionalist Catholics go against the entire rest of what's known as the Catholic Church? And that's the exact wrong way to look at things. We should be viewing them from the exact opposite viewpoint of right, exactly. we are we are doing what what Catholics have done for centuries and centuries. So the questions we should be asking is why are all of these modernists completely changing everything and doing things in a different way? That's exactly right, Tom. I mean, you go back in the 1960s, 1970s when these changes were coming in. We and many of the Catholic people, uh, there were hundreds of millions of them. <laughs> began looking at these people saying, who are these people to change the faith, to go against the teachings of the church for all the centuries, and the examples of the saints and the martyrs and all this? Who is this small cabal of, of modernists who dare to get into the church and start um, completely retooling her, right? Refashioning in her in, in their own image. Uh, now that they've gotten control, they're saying, oh, look at that small group of people who are opposing us. And they, they've got the tables reversed. But anybody who has any sense, who has, who has any knowledge of history, and unfortunately, you know, we've got a whole generation here that is completely out of contact with history. They have no idea what has come before them. Right. They go to a Novus Ordo Mass and they say, oh, gee, this is, uh, this is Catholicism. You know, they don't know any better. It's so sad. You know, they can't tell you what sin is. They can't tell you what grace is. They, they probably couldn't tell you what God, who God is anyway. They don't even know the basis of the catechism. And I feel so sorry for them, because they're completely cut off. And this is exactly the method of Stalin and Lenin, right? Lenin said, give me one generation, and I'll turn the world into a communist you know, empire, because teach them a totally different reality, uh, have them never learn reality of what the past is, right? We will give them our reality, and this will become, this will become their reality and for future generations. This is what the modernists have done. They've gotten away with it. And as Monsieur Lefebvre, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, said so well in one of his early writings, I think 1976, Le coup de maître de Satan, l'obéissance, whatever word he used, the point is that the master stroke of Satan has been using obedience. Obedience to get people to do what the modernists tell them to do, right? Okay. And... Um, there were those who said, we know that this is not the voice of the shepherd. This is not the voice of Christ, because they're contradicting what the church has taught all these years, and we will not, and we cannot follow them. Right. So, um, you're right. I mean, that we, we have to see through the lies and, and the deceits of the modernists. Right. right to the modernist in chief, uh, uh, Francis himself, we have to see right through them, Right. right and uh, realize that this, this is wrong, absolutely. He has come out recently and said that anybody who opposes his reforms is of the devil. And it, it is by the power of the devil that is someone is trying to oppose his changes. Uh, he's trying desperately, like an Obama, you know, to um, uh, make his changes stick and to make them irreversible. So there's no going back. So that once and for all, everybody has rejected Catholic tradition. Right? Okay. Uh, it appears that uh, Barack Obama has not succeeded in that. Okay, he's trying desperately, even now during the last the, the waning days of his presidency, 
if that's what you can call it, <clears throat> to make this, to, to succeed in this, <clears throat> to lock in his so-called legacy, right? right. Um, but uh, to have an illicit legacy is, you know, it's kind of an oxymoron. But anyway, the, uh, the problem is that for, uh, in the church, of course, Catholics, in the Catholic soul, we have a sense of obedience to God. We do. It, one cannot eradicate that from the Catholic soul. And traditional Catholics have the sense of obedience. We really do. In fact, we probably are about the only ones left who do. Uh, the liberal Catholics have no sense of obedience whatsoever, so they couldn't care less. And, but the, the conservative modern Catholics, okay, are going to the new Mass, or even the Latin Mass, you know, the traditional Latin Mass or the Novus Ordo Latin Mass, although there's not much of that going on. Um, they claim to be obedient, but they're not really being obedient to Catholic tradition. They're willing to compromise in their obedience to the Church and Christ of the, of the ages to be obedient, to go along with the, these changes here. So they, they claim obedience, and they claim that traditional Catholics are disobedient. But they have to kind of almost um, tamper with the very definition of obedience to make it apply to them. And that's, that's, exactly, and, what, uh, that's exactly what modernists and, and liberals do. That's their yeah. MO, is to change, change the meaning change the of the definitions. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I like how you, you mentioned that, that idea of, of obedience, because that's, that's such a huge factor yeah. in, in Catholic, uh, oh, yeah. in the Catholic religion. But people will, will use that argument of, of you have to have obedience, you have to follow the Pope, you have to ob obey the Pope. But that's not true obedience because <laughs> true obedience has to be based, it, it has to ultimately end in, in our Lord. And there's all the Popes in the entire history of the entire Church, all of their authority combined cannot supersede the authority of Christ. So that's ultimately what we have to obey. Exactly right. Well, true Catholics realize that Popes must be obedient to Catholic tradition. Right. If a pope were to turn around and say, get rid of the scriptures, get rid of them, you know, right. they don't apply anymore, then we would all say, that's absurd, you can't do that. What kind of a pope would do something like that? You'd say, well, it can't be. No, you know, this man can't be the pope to say something like that. But for Catholics, sacred tradition is, an, is a font of divine revelation, as sacred scripture. Right. So for a pope to do what this man is doing and say, get rid of Catholic tradition, we have to get rid of this, the tradition of the church is one thing, and that is change. So to get rid of the old things we're doing and get something new in here, and anybody who opposes what I'm doing is, you know, being moved by the devil to do that. I mean, that is, should be as outrageous for a Catholic to hear as it would be for to hear a pope say, "Get rid of sacred scripture, throw out the Bible; it's, it's, it doesn't apply anymore. Let's let's rewrite the scriptures." So uh, why they don't react that way when it comes to sacred traditions? Because they don't know. They're, I guess they're ignorant. I, I, I suppose. But you know something. It's it's kind of interesting to see this, uh, and I, I hope uh, I hope I can ex explain this what I'm thinking well, so people can kind of follow whether they agree or not. Something else, but you know, um, we had the presidential uh, presidential elections here in the United States. Okay, right. now uh, Donald Trump won the electoral college, and so the electoral college confirmed that he was the president uh, to be. And uh, he is to be inaugurated and become the president, okay? Now, during this time, of course, um, Hillary Clinton and her uh, cohorts uh, with Obama and the rest of them have, have gotten onto this, this idea that the election was hacked. It was the, the Russians who did this. Vladimir Putin has done this. 
They wanted Trump elected. They uh, they did not want Hillary elected. And the whole idea of the Russians wanting Trump elected is horrific. Right? right. It's horrific. <laughs> Who are they talking to? <clears throat> Where were they? Where were these people when the Russians were doing this and doing that and the other thing? Were they sounding the alarm? The people who are sounding the alarm now against Russians hacking, so-called hacking our elections, right? That's what they tell us. Have they been the great champions against Russia, imperialist Russia, communist Russia, Soviet Russia? That's ridiculous. These are the same people who, when Hillary Clinton was endorsed by the Communist Party USA, said not a word about it. They're perfectly happy with that. Perfectly happy with it. Right? But now that Trump has been elected, now all of a sudden, oh, horrors, the Russians have sought the election of Trump. You know? I don't know why you know, I hear people saying, but the Communist Party of USA said they wanted Hillary elected. Didn't that count? Not to them. Why are they doing this then? Why are they pushing this big deal about Russia hacking the election? Did Russia hack the election? I don't know. Could they have? I don't know. I suppose there are ways, but they couldn't hack the independent voting machines. You know, Whether they were trying to influence public opinion against Hillary with uh, Assange's WikiLeaks, as they call them, <clears throat> I, I find it hard to believe. We, we now have some kind of uh, talk as though the Russians had a dossier on Trump that he had uh, involved himself in all these horribly immoral things. And so maybe the Russians did want Trump elected so that they could then reveal all this horrible dossier about his immoral life and again throw Americans into panic again. But again, the point is this. Um, when the liberals want to um, uh, start shake up the conservatives, if they can use liberal or conservative, because what does it even mean anymore? It's so fluid. They, they bring up objections, they bring up horrible, scandalous things that, as far as the liberals are concerned, they're non-issues, they don't care. So a man has been betraying his wife and his family and uh, adultery and all the other... The liberals don't care, they almost glory in this kind of stuff. I mean, look at the history of Bill Clinton. You know, as far as that goes, you can bring up till the, you know, the cows come home, all the, all the misdeeds of Bill Clinton, and they say, oh... You know, what does that matter? Don't get to... But as soon as they want to discredit a conservative, oh, they reveal all these terribly immoral things, right? Because, because we're the only ones who care anymore. They bring up issues that mean nothing to them whatsoever. They express their horror and their outrage that anyone would do these immoral things, but they don't care. But they have to appear to care because they know we do. And they're bringing up these issues that in a sense, ring our bell, and, um, and, and they know that we will be horrified. We don't want a president who has been elected by the Russian uh, intelligence agencies. We don't want a, a, a president who's been, arrest, who's been elected by the NKVD, by the, um, by the um, Russian secret police, that's the NKVD, it's the old one, FSB, I guess they call them now. Right? We don't want Soviet disinformation of past ages. We don't want uh, Russian disinformation now swaying our elections. We don't. 
The conservatives don't. And that's what they're trying to use against us. Of course, now um, we find out that this is all a bunch of, again, propaganda, disinformation that they've been cooking up, right? Um, that has come to us allegedly through the, through the Brits, uh, even through the hands of John McCain, to the FBI, possibly the CIA, right? Uh, to try to get the American people horrified that they've elected Donald Trump. And you know what? It's a dirty, dirty, dirty game they're playing. And that is why we have to be careful uh, to give any credence to what these people say, you know? And I think, I think we've come to this point now, though, that, yes, the liberals realize they've lost, they've lost, okay? Now they're going to resort to the dirty, dirty game of disinformation with the communists, whether they can claim to be former communists or not, we're not fooled, okay? They still have the same nomenclatura ties together, okay, of the old communists. And they're bringing in all this disinformation in, but I think people now, uh, conservatives, are still horrified by the ideas there, but they just don't believe too readily. They still, now they're, they're very suspicious about this misinformation that is being fed to them. So it's not that conservatives have lost the horror of adultery. It's not that the conservatives have lost the horror of all the various forms of immorality. But they just are not quite so ready to believe what the media, even what our own American intelligence agencies are spoon-feeding us to uh, manipulate us. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because it's exactly what the modernists do. You said it as much. Francis and the modernists in the Vatican use the same tactics. Um, they, when they, they will want to stir up this question of obedience, when they want conservatives to snap to attention and say, oh yes, I can't question, can I? I have to go along, don't I? With everything you say, don't I? And, uh, but they realize we're the only ones who care about that anymore, right? They will use that on us, even though they personally don't even believe in it. Even though they personally let people get away with murder, spiritual murder out there. When it comes to uh, pulling the chain around our ankles, right, around our necks, they know what change to pull. They know that we, as Catholics, we have a great esteem for obedience. And we actually want to obey. We have a, a will to obey, okay? But we know we can't obey them in what they're doing. They will still use every trick in the book to get to, to get us to do what they want, and they will use the methods that they know are important to us to induce us, to strong-arm us into following their modernism. And But, you know, as the, the days go by, weeks, months, more and more people are figuring out what's going on. Like the American people here, figuring out what's going on. More and more people in the church are figuring out what's going on, and they're realizing, I cannot be a party to this. Why do they do what they do? And then when I balk at following them, they turn around and say, but obedience, you have to follow us. You can't question us. And I see all this other, all this other stuff going on, and there's no obedience, and they, they seem to be perfectly fine with it. But as soon as I have a problem with something they do, immediately they play the obedience card. 
people are figuring out that this is the tactic they're using, and they realize it is a tactic. It's not honest, and and they're not they're less and less inclined to, to uh, fall into that trap and go along with it. Right. I hope this gentleman finds his way back to the true mess. Right. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting interesting topic, and a lot more could be said. But we we definitely encourage this this viewer to to seek out and find a, a true traditional priest and to uh, avail himself of, of the mass and the sacraments. Um, Father, I'd like to to switch gears a little bit here to one one final question concerning the topic of annulments. And one of our viewers writes in and asks how a priest such as Father Jenkins would treat a situation in which one obtained an annulment from a Novus Ordo local tribunal. Does he examine the validity of the annulment if the person wants to become a traditional Catholic? He goes on to states he, he's asked other priests and hasn't exactly gotten, gotten a straight answer. Um, and he would also like to know if the marriage would be sacramental if the witness would be some uh, different sort of priest, maybe not a traditional priest. Would that would that mm-hmm. marriage still be sacramentally valid? Okay. He asked a number of questions there, right? Right. First of all, he starts out by talking about St. Vicantus priest, right? Right. Uh, and I would just caution that the word St. Vicantus is used and abused. It is so misused today. It, it applies to such a range of people that... You almost have to ask for a definition. Like, what, do you, what do you mean okay. when you say that? I mean, I could answer your question yes or no, okay. but I might be deceiving you because if what you're thinking is a state of accountants and what I'm thinking is a state of accountants, two different things, then we're not even talking about the same thing. Sure. Um, so I'm not sure what he means by state of accountants, too. Okay. Okay, but um, if by state of accountants he means someone who is, has dogmatic authority to declare Francis to be not the Pope, okay? That uh, well, who has that dogmatic authority? Right? The magisterium of the Catholic Church has authority. I don't have it. You don't have it. And uh, neither any traditional uh, faithful priests or bishops, in uh, individually or as a group, have the magisterial authority of the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, we don't have the authority to lay down a dogma to the effect about that. But uh, <clears throat> to to recognize the fact that there are serious problems and that there's a serious question about the legitimacy of a papacy of a Novus Ordo modernist like Francis, right? That is the very least we can do. <coughs> In fact, that is the least we must do, simply facing, facing reality, right? Uh, there are such things as anti-popes. Uh, that's a fact, okay? And we have authority from the Church speaking in the past that uh, uh, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, came and taught you a different gospel, Declare him anathema and do not follow him, right? St. Paul says that. Divine revelation, epistle to the Galatians. You can't get a greater authority than that, right? So <clears throat> we know these things can happen, and uh, it would certainly, uh, one could make a very strong case that Francis is teaching, teaching a different gospel. Um, all one has to do is pay attention to what he's saying and doing. So, without getting into that whole question, I would say that um, if one considers the state of account as someone who dogmatically states, I have decided that Francis is not the Pope, and by my authority I decree that he is not the Pope, and you all must agree with me if you want to be Catholic, I would say no. I condemn that idea. Uh, yes, I would say to them, well, whether or not Francis is the Pope, you, I know you are not the Pope, and so you do not have the authority to dogmatically state anything of the kind. <clears throat> but uh, if one were to say, well, a state of account is someone who recognizes um, theologically the likelihood that someone is not a pope, 
and even the that some cannot possibly be the Pope. You know, I myself uh, raise the question, but I don't. I don't claim to answer it. But I do raise the question. And I think it's a good question. Uh, how can someone uh, formally accept the responsibility for an office in the church, the papacy, which he doesn't even believe in? But a man has to do that. He has to make a formal acceptance of the responsibilities of the office of the papacy to become the pope. Being elected by the cardinals does not make him the pope. Accepting the office, then, that makes him the pope. How can Francis, who not only doesn't believe in the papacy, but actually has a concept of the papacy which is totally um, contrary to the Catholic teaching of what the papacy really is, and Francis has already expressed this. How can that be considered a formal acceptance of the office of the papacy when he doesn't even believe there is such a thing? As we know it, as, Catholic, as the Church has taught it all those years. I think it's a serious question, but nobody seems to be even willing to address it. You know? So I can't help that. But because those questions are there, and I think they're very worthy questions, um, then, uh, and by the way, this question even precedes the question about someone losing the papacy, because this is about the question of whether he even, you know, had the faith to accept the papacy to begin with, whether he could even become the Pope in the first place, you know. Uh, but there are so many, I think, theologically worthy questions out there that simply won't go away because they are good questions and they require good answers, I think, myself, anyway. Um, then I think we have to be open to the, the uh, possibility or the likelihood that he's not the Pope. But I, I hesitate over this uh, whole question, as I say. I think it is a dilemma because, uh, obviously, there are consequences of saying, well, he's not the Pope, period, you know? And those consequences have to do with the future of the church and whether there can ever be a pope ever again. Because the normal way that we've seen for centuries now for the church to designate her popes is by the, the vote of the cardinals who represent the clergy of Rome. And if uh, someone is not validly a pope, he's not, he has no authority to appoint cardinals. <clears throat> and Eventually, after a series of these Novus Ordo Popes and Modernists have come, if they all were not genuine Popes because of the same problem, like they were Modernists, it gets to the point where there are virtually no Cardinals left that are really appointed with the authority of a true Pope. At which point it would seem to be impossible for the Church to have another valid Papal election. You see what I mean? That is a difficult question to me. That's a serious problem. I don't know how to answer that. I haven't met anyone yet who could, at least not to my satisfaction. Uh, so, again, you know, I think we have to be careful about this because there are tons of books, volumes in the various languages of the world written about the papacy uh, by really worthy the theologians. I certainly have not read them all. I don't know anyone who's read them all. I don't know of anyone who's read them all. Uh, but I don't know that you need to read them all. The, the problem is, though, it's not that simple a problem. It is complex, and as I say, it, it even seems to pose a, a bit of a dilemma, uh, at least in my mind. Okay, Maybe others find it very simple and straightforward, 
I think it is a complex problem. I just wanted to address that question of Sadomacantism because there are groups like the Society of St. Pius X that just tar and feather people with this Sadomacantist uh, word and never really define it uh, and, and use it almost as a mantra to scare people away from other traditional Catholic people and priests. And it's not right, it's not honest, it's not fair, it's not... Uh, 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 there's a certain lack of integrity and using, uh, abusing the term, I think, um, to secure people's allegiance to them by scaring them away from other traditional Catholics. But anyway, with regard to what this gentleman has said here, <coughs> he's asking uh, the next question that uh, he's asking about a marriage. Is that a- right? About annulments. So annulments, what, what, okay. would you, what would you do if you encountered a case where someone had received an annulment from a, from a local... Do I review it? Um, I will not review the annulment. Uh, why? Well, because um, when I say I will not review it, I have to explain. Okay, I'll ask for the annulment papers, and I'll see what grounds were used or abused to grant the annulment. Okay, and I'll try to see. Well, is there could there be possibly any merit to this? Okay, and we'll look also at the uh, the circumstances of the marriage and see if the very law of the church. The traditional law of the church uh, nullified that marriage from the very beginning. Okay, for example, I mean, so a gentleman shows up and he says, "I have an annulment from the Novus Ordo. I'm annulling my marriage to Nancy. I got my marriage to Nancy annulled, and now I want to marry Penelope, who's a traditional Catholic, and I want to become a traditional Catholic, start a traditional Catholic family." There's just this little complication of there's this Nancy and I married her. And um, so I went to the Novus Ordo, I got my annulment. Um, so now I'm free and clear to marry Penelope, right? And the answer is no. <laughs> Not on the basis of that annulment because you can't trust that. The Novus Ordo is giving out tens of thousands of annulments every year, has been for about 50 years now, almost 50 years now. So, um, you can't trust that piece of paper that you get from them. Um, It might be instructive, in a sense, pointing in a direction to show that there is uh, a reason for um, seeing the marriage to Nancy was null and void from the beginning, according to the traditional norms, but we're not going to accept the judgment of the Novus Ordo and the Modernists as being the, the, uh, the last word on the subject. We can't. So, um, we might find out that uh, Bob was baptized Catholic, and he married Nancy before a justice of the peace. The church law says that that's impossible. That cannot be valid. That would not be accepted as valid marriage by the church. So Bob was never married to Nancy. Right. In the eyes of the state, he might have been, but in the eyes of God, no. So, uh, that's all I would need if it were proved, proven that that is a fact, that that's exactly what happened. That's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Then I can say to Bob, you, by the law of the, the Catholic Church, never validly married this woman. That means that you would be free to marry Penelope, start a traditional Catholic family, and so on. For example, uh, <clears throat> let's say Bob was not a valid, uh, a baptized Catholic. Let's say Nancy was. 
Okay? <clears throat> and now he wants to divorce her, he wants to become a traditional Catholic. Well, if either one of them was a baptized Catholic, it would not, that means they, they could not marry together before a Lutheran minister, before a Presbyterian minister, in a Unitarian church, and before a justice. They can't do it. And so the law of the church itself says no. I don't have to render a judgment on this. I just have to look at the facts. And um, there are a number of other circumstances, too, that, that would you know, uh, possibly mean that a marriage would be null and void from the very beginning. We have to see what the law of the church says. If it comes down to it, though, that you have a case where, let's say you have a baptized Catholic, marry a baptized Catholic, in the, even in the Novus Ordo, okay? And they express their marriage vows, and uh, they're witnessed and all the rest, right? Um, I have no authority to... Uh, to grant Bob an annulment, and not accepting uh, the Novus Ordo annulments on their face value, uh, that doesn't mean that I, therefore, uh, by default, have the right to grant them an annulment of my own. Not only that, but uh, I can't do that. I can't call on a council of the priests to decide that, because they have no more authority collectively than I have individually. I can't go to a traditional Catholic bishop and say, you need to grant an annulment, or could you grant an annulment for this? Because those traditional Catholic bishops don't have the jurisdiction necessary to grant annulments. It might well just happen, as it has happened in the past, that I have to tell the people, look, um, I cannot grant you an annulment, and I'm not going to pretend to do so. Um, and this is not worth the paper it's written on this Novus Ordo annulment. So it, it may well be that God is asking you to simply be faithful to the marriage vows you've made and to sanctify your soul and become a great saint if you have to make that sacrifice. But um, the fact is that uh, the church grants the favor of law to the marriage vows once they're made. And in order to uh, nullify them uh, or, or annul them, you have to have proof positive, but this is a judgment that has to be granted by the magisterium of the church, and no other authority has that power to grant that judgment. Uh, that is the only judgment that can give you the certitude you need to uh, proceed, but realize you're free to marry someone else. You know? And uh, that is not the Novus Ordo. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it might come down to it where I just tell them I, you know. Right. What, what, what about... Except the fact that marriage is valid. Right. What about his, his second question here? Um, would a marriage be uh, sacramentally valid if the priest administering the, the sacrament um, was, say, a Novus Ordo priest or a priest of a different society? Yeah. Would, that, would that marriage be valid? A different society, a different religion? Or? Uh, he gives the example of an SSPX priest, Society of St. Pius Tans, or, or a State of Econsist priest, mm. or a diocesan priest. Would, would, that, mm. would that marriage be, be valid in those cases? Well, it, generally, I would have to say yes, right? Uh, the validity, the, the uh, validity of a marriage depends upon the marriage vows being spoken and what is being said there reflects the true nature of the 
unicity and the indissolubility of the marriage, that they are marrying for life, right? And they will be faithful to each other, right? And uh, that, and then they have to have the interior intention to do that, and no contrary intention, you know, saying, well, I'm marrying you only for a time, or I'm, I'm free to, you know, have other uh, partners also. I'm not binding myself. I'm not really giving you the marriage rights, okay, for life, and just to you, because that is the essence of the the, the marital contract. You know? And um, to be valid, that ordinarily has to be done in front of a, a Catholic priest who is authorized by the Church for those two people to receive their marriage vows. Okay. Even in the old Code of Canon Law, Canon I think 1098, 1099, 1099, I believe, provides for this in missionary circumstances that a couple who cannot expect to have a priest present, certainly not an authorized priest present, to witness their marriage vows, uh, I think in the canon law it even says for a month, you know, which doesn't seem like a very long period of time, but that they can actually summon two witnesses who stand as witnesses of their vows as they exchange their vows. And they can be considered validly married at that point, because of the missionary circumstances and the permission of the church. Again, this comes down to a matter of the, the sacraments, the validity of the sacraments, as our last questioners tell us talking about, it, and how the church herself acknowledges that the sacraments are still available to the couple, even if there is a default in, on the part of the jurisdiction. You know? So, um, but the, the church does say also that subsequent to that exchange of vows, uh, their marriage, when a priest does come, even one who is not authorized and they have access to him, they should solemnize their marriage with him, renew their marriage vows um, when, the, when they are able to do so. But the church says they are not, they do not have to wait to be married till then. They're married when they exchange the vows before two witnesses. So ordinarily the law of the church requires a duly authorized priest and two witnesses. In one canon of the, uh, in one canon of the uh, code of canon law, in the very next code, it's a canon of the code, it says, and this is the traditional code now, that in default of a priest, it is possible for them to exchange their vows in front of two witnesses only which is really quite remarkable. That is why we've always understood that if a couple, however unaware they may be that the Novus Ordo Church and even their Novus Ordo priest is not practicing the Catholic faith, if they in good faith go to him, thinking this is his Catholicism, getting married there before him because they believe this is what Catholics do and this is what we must do as Catholics, be married here by this clergyman, that they are validly married, indeed, because the couple actually marry each other. You, you know that very well. Uh, that the couple bestow the sacrament of matrimony on each other by mutually exchanging their marriage vows and giving each other mutually marriage rights. Um, were that not the case, you couldn't have the sacrament without the priest being present, but the church has already said you can that brings us to the other question then of whether a marriage before uh, even the fraternity of St. Peter or um, Institute of Christ the King or one of these other 
quasi-traditional outfits. You know, if you go to them, uh, could one be validly married there? Could a Catholic? And the answer is yes, the Catholic could be validly married there. If I had someone come to me and tell me I was married uh, at the Fraternity of St. Peter Chapel here or there, but now I want to get that annulled and marry someone else, I would say, well, I'm sorry. I recognize the validity of your marriage. Mm-hmm. And even if I could grant you an annulment, you know, I, I certainly would not, yeah. um, just because of that. Yeah. So anyway, I, I hope that does uh, answer the, the, question, the questions of this particular correspondent here. Sure. Sure. So, uh, and I, I, I thought it, would, it was interesting to point out that the uh, that, that the <laughs> common expression that that couples will will usually say, "Oh, Father so and so married us." That's actually incorrect because mm-hmm. the sacrament is administered. The, the couple marries each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the priest doesn't marry them. The priest is simply a witness. Which mm-hmm. this, this this viewer used the correct mm-hmm. terminology there, saying a priest witnessing a marriage. Mm-hmm. So I thought it's well, well, I can't even write the whole terminology. And someone, well, did you marry Mrs. So and So? I said, well, I, well, really, actually not. It a sounds witness. a little confusing. <laughs> did you marry Mr. <laughs> Mrs. So and So? I didn't know. Not practically speaking, but you're right. The couple marry each other. The priest there witnesses the marriage right. and, and uh, as it were, presides in the name of the church over that wedding. Right. So uh, it's important for married couples to realize the significance of what they're doing when they exchange their marriage vows. This is something that the Novus Ordo has failed miserably. I mean, even, even Francis, when one of his own Roman priests was asking him about the invalidity of their own marriages and the young people not, you know, understanding the nature of a commitment and Francis saying oh yes it's terrible people these days young people don't have no concept of this lifelong commitment and the priest saying to him well holy father what can we do about it his answer is I don't know I don't know (laughs) (laughs) it is an abomination Um, but the traditional Catholic Church knows exactly what to do about it so uh, you by your example as a married man you know what to do about it and I as a traditional Catholic priest know what to do about it too right well, that sounds like a very good note to end on, right there, Father. We'll definitely keep all of uh, all of our viewers uh, in our in our prayers here. Um, I would encourage any of you, if you have questions, to send them to us at the uh, our, our email address here. Um, that will just about do it for tonight. So, I'd like to thank you, Father, for being here, and I would also like to thank all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask you all to remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.